You're listening to the Eyes on Conservation podcast, episode three. Welcome to the Eyes on Conservation podcast, where we bring you engaging conversations about wildlife conservation issues from all across the globe. I'm your host, Matt Podolsky. In this episode, we'll be hearing an interview with Lauren Meads from the Burrowing Owl Conservation Society of British Columbia. Lauren is the site coordinator for the Okanagan Valley Release Area and Captive Breeding Center, and she'll be telling us all about burrowing owls. As you'll find out in the interview, the burrowing owl was extirpated from British Columbia back in 1980, and the nonprofit group that she works for is committed to bringing them back through a comprehensive program that includes captive breeding uh, and reintroductions uh, in the Okanagan Valley. Lauren will walk us through this whole process of captive breeding and release of these burrowing owls, um, and she will also provide us with uh, sort of an overview of burrowing owl populations uh, across North America and how they're doing throughout their range. So let's get right to that interview. Great. So I'm here with Lauren Meads. Lauren is the site coordinator for the Burrowing Owl Conservation Society of British Columbia's reintroduction project for burrowing owls uh, in the Okanagan Valley. Um, and Lauren is also the uh, one of the producers on the recent video that we just released uh, called Digging for Owls, and she's featured in that video as well. So welcome, Lauren. Hi, thanks. So um, just to kind of get things started here, um, why don't you talk a little bit about how you first got involved with the Burrowing Owl Conservation Society of British Columbia and owl conservation in general? Sure. Um, I actually went to school, did biology, and did a master's in animal behavior and welfare. Um, I actually got on to working with the burrowing owls. I was working at another zoo at the time, and I I was working with some birds, um, more specifically the spotted owl, and we were starting a breeding program for that. Um, I wanted to model the spotted owl program kind of after the burrowing owls. I met some of the people there at a at a uh, conference in Toronto uh, with the burrowing owls. And I just thought they had such a great program, very community orientated, very volunteer driven, um, and just met some really super passionate people. And so for one year, I actually just volunteered at one of the facilities, which is near Vancouver, where we breed some burrowing owls. Um, and then I approached the president, Mike McIntosh at the time, and I said, I'd love to do some more field work. I've got a lot of experience doing captive husbandry and and that kind of stuff but I'd like to try some field work and he said you know what I've got a job for you up in Kamloops and so I went for two years and that's a little bit um, north of where I'm located now in British Columbia and so I was there for two years assisting with the field work uh, working with Dawn Brody Um, she's our field manager so going out and checking the owls every day Um, and then in 2011 I moved down to Oliver which is in the South Okanagan and I helped start um, start up the our third breeding facility down here, and then also working on reintroducing the owls again to the South Okanagan. So we've got three field sites now down in the South, South Okanagan, which we started digging in 2010. So I monitor those as well. So yeah, kind of a long-winded thing, and and now I've been with them almost seven years. So fantastic. Um, yeah. 
Fantastic. And that's, that's, it's neat that you uh, actually had some experience working with a different species of owl before you started working with burrowing owls. So you were working, do, did some work with spotted owls beforehand? Yeah. So I did mostly with uh, work that they were in their captive, um, in the captive breeding program, just the initial stages of it. Um, and I worked with some birds before and some other owls before, but not um, sort of on a bigger conservation scale. Um, so I had some experience with them, but definitely learned learned a ton being with the burrowing owls. And the fact that I get to do both now, which is great, I get to work on the breeding facility, but then I also can follow them out into the field. So that's a really kind of unique situation that we have here. Yeah, for sure it is, you know, and, and, and I have you know, some experience, uh, as a biologist working with California condors. And I was lucky enough to be able to, um, spend a few years working with both the captive breeding program and the, uh, the wild release population of California condors. And you definitely do get, uh, sort of a, a, a nice full circle picture, um, having the opportunity to work, um, on sort of, you know, seeing both sides of the spectrum. So, yeah, 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 exactly. And it's not just sort of isolated from one to the other, but seeing how they can kind of work together. Yeah, absolutely. And the decisions that you make uh, in the captive breeding facility, you see how they impact what's going on in the wild as far as the behaviors. And I know that's the case with the condors, at least. Mm-hmm, exactly. And I mean, obviously, you never want to get to that point. And with the spotted owls, it was really, do we even want to bring them into captivity? Because that's sort of the last ditch effort. Um, but you know, sometimes it is necessary, especially with California condors. I mean, it is necessary or you're going to lose them. Um, same with burrowing owls. That's sort of a trend that's happening across Canada and even in parts of the States and a swatted owl is definitely, that's, you know, that's where they're headed. But it's nice that with this um, program and same with condors, then you, you breed them in captivity and then you have designated areas to release them to. Um, sometimes some programs don't have that. They bring them in and then they're still not sure where to put them out afterwards. Um, so you have to have a lot of planning and, and foresight into that. Yeah, absolutely. And, and it's neat that you guys are able to uh, uh, set up your captive breeding facility sort of very close to those release sites. Um, yeah. Yeah. Fantastic. So what is it, what is it about burrowing owls in particular that that you find particularly appealing, you know, what, why have you, uh, you've sort of committed yourself to, uh, (laughs) to the burrowing owl and their reintroduction to British Columbia. You know, what, what is it about this particular species that you find so appealing? Well, I think there's a few things. I mean, I think when I started out working with different kinds of animals, I was really interested in, um, big cats and all kinds of things. And then, you know, you can do a lot of conservation work in other countries, but sometimes it's nice to to kind of figure out what you have in your own backyard. And we have something, some pretty cool species here. And owls in general are a pretty interesting sort of group of birds, um, very different from other types of birds um, around at night, um, just their different looking face. They're very interesting to work with. And then burrowing owls take it to that extra bit of level is that most people, when they think of owls, they think of forested areas, um, strictly nocturnal, by themselves, um, you know, hanging out in these big trees. Whereas burrowing owls kind of can hang out together. They, they're they kind of on the ground. They live in grasslands. They, they're the only owl that nests on their ground. So they kind of have the, you know, they kind of get more interesting as you, as you delve into their biology and their behavior. Um, they're just, of course, everybody who works with them thinks they're quite endearing. They're very cute little birds. Um, and I get lots of times people asking me, is that, a, is that a young owl? But they're adults. So there's quite little 
And also just to show that we have that range of birds um, in North America, in the world, that they, we have some very small owls, some very big ones. So, and, and I also was really drawn to the society. We have a lot of really dedicated people and that makes you excited and want to do the work when you have other people that are excited and want to do the work. So um, I think there's lots of levels, yeah, to them, to their appeal. Yeah, absolutely. I, I, I agree for sure. And I, I actually spent, you know, that I uh, actually spent um, a summer doing some burrowing owl surveys uh, here here in central Idaho. So, um, yeah, I've got a, a sort of a special place um, in, yeah. in my heart for the burrowing owl as well. <laughs> um, and you're right there. There is, you know, uh, they are definitely unique um, mm-hmm. amongst owls um, in that. Um, their ground nesting and, um, and that you can see them, you know, active during the day, um, yeah. doing their hunting and, 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 and stuff. And, and they are particularly cute as well. Um, yeah, there's, I mean, there's, there's no denying that. <laughs> yeah, exactly. There's definitely, I mean, some larger owls, they can be a little intimidating. Um, they're pretty cool looking, but they're intimidating. When you get the smaller owls, they're definitely kind of cute and and they've got those long legs and they they do run around a lot on the ground so I think you can kind of identify with them a bit more perhaps um but I think it's also again that grasslands conservation I mean it's still not maybe in the forefront of people's minds I think it is becoming more so but you know usually you think of forests and and that kind of stuff that you want to protect and not necessarily the grasslands and that it's a special ecosystem and it has these owls, but it has other things, special plants and insects and other bugs. And um, so um, I think they're kind of a great tool to kind of showcase um, that kind of conservation as well. Yeah, absolutely. And I think you're right. Uh, you, you touched on something really important there, which is just uh, sort of the, the conservation status of grassland bird species in general. Um, and, you know, we, we are sort of seeing... Uh, pretty broad scale declines in yeah. uh, birds that um, that nest specifically in grassland ecosystems. Um, so, yeah, and I, I think the burrowing owl is, is one of those species because it, um, because it is so endearing. It's, it's such a cute yeah. animal that, that hopefully, you know, by uh, uh, teaching people about the conservation of this particular species, we can sort of help, um, help teach folks about all the other components of grassland ecosystems and how important they are. Um, yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Exactly. So yeah, my, yeah. my next question kind of ties into that sure. and I, I guess I kind of answered it for you, but, uh, why is it, <laughs> oh, why God. is it, <laughs> why is it important to keep, um, this British, this, uh, population of burrowing owls, um, in British Columbia, why is it important to keep this specific population going? Um, again, it's with a lot of endangered species and, or threatened species, um, always the first to go is those fringe um, populations and it sort of can constrict um, and start if you start losing those fringes your borders get smaller and smaller and eventually you've kind of got this very small isolated population so the the good thing of the one about British Columbia is that this is sort of their most northern range um, that where they would be breeding so their most northern breeding grounds so we want to make sure we can preserve that if we start losing them in BC then we're going to start losing them more in Washington and then Oregon and then um, further and further down. And then we're only going to have like a, maybe a small resident population of the Southern States. And then maybe eventually that even goes. So trying to kind of, you know, keep those most Northern ranges is sort of, I think our main um, concern. And for us too, even the grasslands um, in BC is, it's actually quite huge. And a lot of people don't really kind of think of British Columbia as sort of a grasslands area 
think again of big coastal forests. Um, so again, sort of preserving that, um, and and again for other species as well, um, because we have problems too up here. You know, agriculture and development sort of take over grasslands areas. So we want to make sure that those are preserved as well. That that, that northern range of that habitat. Yeah. Um, yeah. And and also like to still have a a foothold in Canada. I mean, um, Manitoba's also kind of come under the same thing. The burrowing owls have been gone from there since the late '90s. In BC, it was the late '80s, um, and they're actually doing a breeding and release program there. And really, the only last few wild owls we have left in Alberta and Saskatchewan, and even those are dwindling. So we want to still you know, maintain a presence in Canada, at least of these birds. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And yeah, I, I think you're right. You, you sort of touched on the fact that, you know, when most people think of British Columbia and what the ecosystems and habitat looks like there, um, uh, you know, most people aren't envisioning uh, a, a grassland type ecosystem. Yeah. Um, so uh yeah, it, it was unique, you know, I mean, I, I was lucky enough to uh, uh, spend some time um, up in that area, and um, yeah, the landscape is spectacular, and it, it's it's not what you would expect, I guess, for um, for being in British Columbia, and I, I think you're right that it is, it's important to keep those those small patches of grassland ecosystem that, that you guys have uh, intact. So, yeah. um, you, you, you mentioned uh, sort of the population declines in other parts of Canada for burrowing owls. Um, and so uh, it, it seems clear that, you know, we're seeing, uh, like you say, sort of along the fringe, like in the, in the northernmost part of their range, um, mm-hmm. burrowing owl populations are certainly declining. Um, but, I mean, what about burrowing owls as a whole? I mean, how's this species doing, um, you know, when you look uh, across their entire range? Mm-hmm. Um, actually, it was just, at, well, not just, I guess, in February, I was at a symposium in Pasco, Washington, and it was the fourth international burning owl symposium. So we had a lot of partners from um, the United States and in Canada um, looking at the burrowing owl issues. And even, I mean, in Canada, they are um, listed, they are red listed, which means they are endangered. So, and they're continuing to decline. Um, in the States, they're sort of, they're, they're having sort of some different sort of results. I mean, definitely some areas they're seeing quite a few of them, but I think the general trend and what came out of that conference is they are declining, um, especially from these more northern breeding areas. So Washington, Oregon are having similar issues. I mean, they still have enough that they're not endangered yet. They're threatened, um, but it's sort of a catch-22. Like you want them to be more protected but then that would mean they'd be on the endangered list and that you wouldn't want them to get to that point. Um, there's also a lot of uh, programs going on in um, like in some of the southern states where they do relocations. And so that's not reintroductions. It's actually moving owls from an area that maybe will be developed and then moving them somewhere else. And that's an okay solution temporarily, but then there's not really a follow-up of what's happening afterwards. Um, San Diego is doing something really interesting, San Diego Zoo, where they're trying to release ground squirrels ahead of time in an area to produce the burrows that would be for the burrowing owls that they can release later. Um, but that, you know, has a whole set of other problems. It's hard to keep rodents in an area. And um, they can do that because they own a lot of other land that they can do that. But sometimes up here, you know, people are not that keen if you want to release badgers and ground squirrels in an area. So 
I think there's lots of different tactics around. And I, um, I think what's great about these symposiums and, and working with, with you guys down in the States is having that more of a North American, um, you know, North American conversation. It's not necessarily just in Canada or just um, down in the States where this needs to be addressed, but obviously across the board because our owls are migrating down to the States. So we need to know what's going on in the wintering grounds. And if they're not coming back, where are they? Are they staying down there? And, you know, maybe our program up here, maybe we just keep breeding owls so that there'll always be a steady stream going down to the States and helping protect that population. Um, but, you know, it's it's hard to it's hard to predict um, how these things are going to sort of pan out. But I think there's lots of really great organizations going on down in the States. A lot of really um, passionate people um, been working a lot with the Global Owl Project and David Johnson. And he's really been spearheading a lot of the tracking, a lot of the movements of the owls in Washington and Oregon um, and starting to help now track some of the movements of them up in Alberta. Um, we have tracked a little bit. Um, Jeff Holroyd and Helen Treffrey have tracked some owls in Alberta and definitely got some great data on that. Um, but, you know, as things change, we kind of can, we have to keep kind of going on that and trying to figure out where are they going? What's happening to them? Why are they not sort of, why is their population not increasing? Especially with all these groups putting burrows everywhere. Um, you would think there's so many holes in the ground now, there should be a lot of owls, but maybe that's not the limiting factor anymore. So, right. Yeah. right. Sorry, I just went on a tangent there. <laughs> no, that's, that, that's okay though. Um, you kind of started to delve into my next question, which is sort of looking at, you know, what the cause of these uh, population declines, specifically in the northern part of their range, are. Yeah. And um, obviously, you just sort of touched on um, one factor, which is, uh, you know, a lack of burrows, right? So burrowing yeah. owls can't, you know, they don't dig their own burrows. They use existing burrows that um, that usually uh, rodents like badgers or ground squirrels or prairie dogs um, dig out, and once they're abandoned by those animals, they come in there and kind of. Uh, uh, I, I mean, they do a little bit of digging, but um, for the most part, they're they're just using those existing burrows and kind of digging out a nice space in there for the, themselves for them to uh, raise their clutch of young. Um, and I know that you know, in talking to you uh, throughout the course of our video project. Um, I know that, and 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 I and, and I also know that you know sort of the uh, initial strategy of the Burrowing Owl Conservation Society of British Columbia was you know like well maybe these burrows are the limiting factor, um, mm -hmm. and you guys have had these great volunteer efforts to get folks out to dig burrows, yeah. um, but it's interesting to hear that you know now you're you're kind of suspecting well maybe maybe it's something else. Uh, I mean maybe you could talk a little bit more about. Um, some of the ideas that, that you guys have as far as, you know, what really are these limiting factors for um, these burrowing owl populations in the northern part of their range? Yeah, I think, I mean, I, I, I don't know if we know we're certain, and a lot of this is my own opinion as well, not necessarily the societies. I mean, we still are putting burrows in and you know, we hope to sort of make some homes for them and and um, in areas that they would they would have been in before. Um, but I think, yeah, I mean, traditionally it's been people have sort of cited the problems as lack of burrows, pesticide use. So you know that would be influencing their prey base. Um, 
And so, and then lack of those burrowing mammals that are around that would kind of maintain the burrows. Cause it's not just a matter of digging it once they have to come back and keep maintaining it. So, you know, those were traditionally a lot of the, the reasons why. And, um, but I'm, you know, kind of talking with some other people, you know, there's probably a lot of other factors and especially last year we had a fairly wet spring. And so because these owls are nesting underground, they're going to be more susceptible to increased water levels. So if there's a lot of dampness in the ground, the young aren't going to survive. So then you kind of have something coming in, you know, climate change, sort of, you know, everybody's kind of go to um, that things are changing. And and some other people have had some pretty interesting papers, like even showing like hawk migration is changing. Um, they're, you know, changing their roots a bit and, and maybe not going, uh, maybe going further north and maybe not as far south. So I think there's a lot of factors and it's unfortunate. I mean, I wish it was just one thing. Um, cause I think if it was limited, limited to burrows, then I think we would be fine. Um, the other issue, of course, that, that impacts ours is that they migrate. I think we probably would have had a resident if we could just have residents maintain owls all year round, then I think we possibly could have had a sustainable population. Um, but because migration, I mean, that's hard on any, any species. Um, you can lose a lot to that. Um, and someone interesting kind of pointed out, um, like, uh, Troy Willicum and, um, some of our other counterparts in the state, they sort of cited that even our migrati- migrating birds, once they become residents down in the states, they ought, they tend to stay residents. They don't migrate back. So even if an owl here, say, migrates for a few years, but then, you know, for whatever reason stays down there, he's not going to come back. So we're not going to see it coming back up here. So, um, yeah, I think it's it's still a bit of a puzzle. Um, but I think the, the society um, is trying to get more involved with other people and trying to work through this problem, not just independently, but with other with other folks. Because otherwise, if we just if we're kind of just so isolated and just work on our own, we're never going to it's never going to work. Um, so I'm I'm a big proponent of working with other groups and seeing what's worked for them and what hasn't worked for them. Um, so, you know, trying to be more involved in that international community. And we even went down last year to Argentina for a conference and it was really interesting down there because they have quite a few burrowing owls. Um, so they thought it was quite interesting that we were doing so much conservation work in North America with burrowing owls. Um, they're a slightly different subspecies, but pretty much look basically the same as the ones up here, which is still, which is nice that they're down here, down there, but then they don't have a migratory species. So I almost wonder something to do, at least with the Northern population, that is a, is um something that's definitely hard for the owls. Um, but there's a lot of groups working at looking where are they going and, and what's happening to them. Um, so, yeah, I mean, it's just an interesting puzzle and I think we'll just kind of keep, plugging away at it so yeah yeah it is it's definitely very very interesting and um yeah i'm glad that you touched on that that trip that you guys took down to to argentina um and that that's so that's actually fascinating i just learned something just now because i didn't realize that the uh populations of burrowing owls that they have down in south america were non-migratory yeah, well, especially like in Argentina, yeah, they tend to stay around all year. I was talking about them being migratory at ours, and, and they said, oh, yeah, no, these ones hang around. And I saw a few at the zoo that they had, they were orphaned ones, and they look exactly, exactly like ours. And 
I actually read on the IUCN that, you know, burrowing owls globally, they're okay because of some of those other populations, but um, sort of regionally not doing well or locally not doing well. So, um, but I mean, it would be sad to lose them in North America. And then the only population you may have is in Argentina. And who knows, maybe those effects that happened up here could potentially affect those ones down there at some point. Right. Absolutely. Absolutely. So, yeah, and it, it's it, it it is it's an it's an interesting problem that that you guys are dealing with. Whereas you know the at least a, a large percentage right of the owls that you guys are releasing as a part of your program end up migrating south and just yep. decide not to come back yeah. to um to to British Columbia. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, pretty. It's. Uh, fascinating and 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 yeah we're we're definitely going to have to sort of stay connected as you guys continue uh digging into that and trying to figure out um exactly what's going on there yeah i mean it, and it's not just like you know like getting rid of ddt and then hopefully a population will come back it's just it, it's something maybe we don't we don't even we haven't touched on it yet but we hopefully we can find something and um i am wanting to have more possibly students you know, doing research and, and looking at different, um, different ideas of doing things. And, you know, um, it's great because we have such a large breeding population. We can do a lot of things in the captive facilities that you wouldn't really want to test out on the, the field, the wild ones, as you don't want to sort of disturb what they're doing. So, um, I always think that we could, we could probably do some more with definitely some research, but again, that's always funding. Funding costs, right, is always the big limiting factor. So, sure, yes, in the world of conservation, that is yes. always the limiting factor. <laughs> so, um, but I'm 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 glad you sort of uh, uh, touched on the captive breeding process and what you guys are able to do uh, because of the large uh, population of captive owls that you guys have. Um, and you know, I think I think that's something that that um, folks might be interested in learning more about is your uh, sort of the the captive breeding process in general and also um, the different stages and you know that the birds go through before they actually get released into the wild so I was hoping maybe you could give me just kind of a step-by-step process um, for releasing these captive raised owls so like that just from like when we first have them in the breeding facility to release is that kind of yeah, just kind of an overview of how the captive breeding process works and, you know, uh, uh, the different stages that those birds go through before they're uh, released into the wild. Sure. So um, we have three breeding facilities. So we have, they're all sort of geographically separate. So that's in case something happens at one facility, we still have the other two. Um, so between the three facilities, we produce about um, 80 to 100 owls a year that we would release. And the owls that stay at the breeding facilities, actually, a lot of them came from Washington or Oregon originally because we didn't have any native ones here. Um, and then we have actually gone back, we went back to Oregon a couple of years ago and got a few more um, breeders because some of our other ones got older. Um, though we probably, we do have a stud bookkeeper, so that's somebody that looks after the genetics. Um, we probably don't need to go back down and get any more owls for quite a while, which we would like to avoid as we don't want to to tamper with the population down there um, with proper breeding and stuff. We should be able to avoid that. Um, so the parents, they stay here all year. Um, we pair them up in February 
And then usually by April, May, they started a nest um, in the breeding facility. Um, and sort of by June, they've hatched. And right now, even in our breeding facility, all of the young are flying around. They're eating on their own. They're doing everything on their own. So they become pretty much self-sustainable around um, 8 to 12 weeks. Um, pretty much 12 weeks, they're pretty much on their own. Um, so right now, everybody's flying around. So everybody that was born this year, we actually release all the young next year. Um, so about a month ago, I actually um, collected all the owls in the facility, uh, banded all of them. So on all of our owls that we released, they have on their uh, right leg a green or a black band that's got alphanumeric numbers on it. And that's a distinct band. That means they're BC burrowing owls. And then the number in letters is, is specific to that bird. I take a feather from them and we actually send that to a lab and they do a DNA test just to figure out if they're male or female. So come April, then we know which ones are male and female. We can put them out together as pairs. Um, Amy Mitchell um, developed their soft release caging technique. So when we release the birds um, in April, we put some soft release cages over top of burrows. And then we can put a male and a female in there. And the reason why we, we did this is before we would just kind of put the owls into the man-made burrows that we had dug out in the different properties. So lots of our properties are on ranch land. Uh, we have a few new properties now. One is on Nature Conservancy and one is a provincial site. And so we used to just put them out there. But then oftentimes they would leave because they have no site fidelity to that specific burrow. They're not from there. They, you know, if they get spooked or see a predator, they might take off. So the soft release caging actually helps them sort of stay in that area. It's a, a four foot by four foot by four foot um, sort of soft um, caging. And so they're in there and then they get to know about aerial predators. Even though our breeding facilities are pretty open and they see the aerial predators, I think they kind of get used to it. Like they're in the cage. They know that they're safe. This is a little bit. Um, you know, less secure so they can see these things and hopefully they'll go in the burrows. Um, we also feed them at that time. We take out supplement food for them. So we have dead mice um, and dead dale chicks that we feed them. And usually by the time we've taken those cages off about 10 to 14 days later, they'll, they will have hopefully mated, um, started a nest, maybe even laid an egg. And that secures them to that site. They're more apt to stay. Once we take up the cages, they're more apt to stay, especially if they've started a nest, but they'll want to stay and see it through. Um, and so that that actually increased their survivability of those owls by 50% and increased the productivity by 50%. So Amy's project really was a great master's project. It really was a um, very applied um, project that really sort of elevated the program. So we've been using those cages for the last um, eight to 10 years now. And so that means we actually have more owls produced out in the field. So those owls that we release, they have young, and it's really those young that we hope will migrate and come back. So those ones will be born at the end of June. Um, and then I banned all of them once they're four weeks old, uh, about end of July, beginning of August. And we ban them at four weeks because they're old enough to take the band on them and then they also um, they're not flying around yet so they're actually really easy to catch I can just um, get them in the burrow and so we put that green over black band and then we also put a U.S. Fish and Wildlife band on their left leg and that happens also with all the birds that we release and that puts them in a big um, database so we've had owls that have been ID'd down in the states or maybe have been caught 
they can read off that band number, send it to their local government, and eventually we can get it up here. And so we know where our birds have been because sometimes people don't know what the green over black is. Um, even though we've tried to advertise that, it's, um, you know, lots of people see lots of different kind of colored bands and things like that. So the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Band is pretty important, and that's only on birds that we release. So, yeah, when they're four weeks old out in the field, we band and band all those guys. I'm still going out and actually supplement feeding them. Because we're putting them in a new area, we want to make sure that they're healthy and doing well. Um, but we don't feed enough that if, you know, if they wanted to go somewhere else and go to a different area, that's fine. Um, we also monitor their pellets. Um, so that's what they cough up to see what they're eating. And it's really great because I feed white mice and yellow chicks. So I can kind of tell them the pellet if they've moved to more of a, a native diet. So if they're eating pocket gophers or deer mice or grasshoppers, that the, the color and the texture of the pellet will change. And um, and right now I'm still monitoring them, not going out as much as when they were younger. Um, and the owls can actually have between six to 12 young in a nest. Um, so they lay quite a few eggs, especially the ones up north. They seem to lay a lot. And maybe maybe that's a reason for migration because it's so hard to try and produce more. And um, but the last couple of years, we've actually seen a decrease sort of when we banned on how many young survive. And that could be because we've had some quite wet um, springs up here. Um, and then by September, October, the young tend to leave. And then usually by the end of October, most of the owls have left and migrated. Sometimes we do get some owls that actually will stay here all year round. And we call those overwinter owls. And, um, you know, it's not that the cold really gets to them. It's that they, if they can still hunt, find food, and they can get into a burrow or in a shelter, they actually can survive the winter. So sometimes they can, sometimes they can't. So um, that may be something in the future is if we have more of those overwinter birds, maybe they will draw in more of the migratory birds or vice versa. Um, so that's sort of it in a nutshell, I guess. <laughs> Gotcha. Nutshell as I can. So yeah, yeah, it's 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 definitely it's a very interesting process and yeah, um, yeah, the whole uh, uh, soft release process that you explained is is definitely interesting and hmm. you know especially interesting for me, I guess you know coming from a background where I you know uh, worked with captive breeding for California condors and you know every decision that we would make you know is tied to you know how can we make this. Um, this bird that we're raising, you know, an ideal release candidate, you know, yeah. so that it has these skills that it needs to survive in the wild. And it's, it's super neat that you guys were able to develop this technique where the birds that, you know, are being released out into the wild, like they're really getting raised in the wild yeah. um, by the, the parents that are hmm. um, the captives. So, um, yeah. Yeah, I mean those birds are, have you know sort of very minimal contact with with humans, and they're they're you know going off into the world with um, all all the skills that they need to survive. Um, if only they would uh, migrate back to <laughs> the area where they were released, you guys would be uh, all set, right? <laughs> yeah, we could put like a leash on them and just like track them back or something. Yeah. But yeah, I mean, hit on something. I think that's important for us. I mean. You know, sometimes you have no choice and you have to hand raise these birds and, you know, do a lot of work in that. For us, it's, I mean, burrowing owls are actually pretty easy to breed in captivity. And if you can, if you can get the parents to do the work and raise the young, that's always the best, best thing. Because they're going to teach the young things we don't even know 
that we needed to teach them. Yeah, um, and especially, yeah, the one even here at the captive facilities, the most contact they have with people is one day someone comes in and feeds and then leaves, and basically they're left left alone. So yeah, we try and do as minimal contact as possible. So even though our our owls we release from the captive, they may be a little bit more. Um, you know, you can kind of tell when you put them out in the field, you know, they don't fly away as readily, say, as the other ones, but they, they actually do okay. We still have, we've actually had some, you know, migrate and come back, even though they were raised in the captive program. But then, yeah, if they're good parents out in the field, that's really great and teach those young, like the, the hunting skills, um, that would be really hard for us to, to duplicate as well, even though you can do it definitely, um, some birds, but yeah, I mean, if you can get, them to do the work that's better so yeah absolutely absolutely well fantastic lauren um yeah i think i think we're gonna kind of wrap things up here but um yeah i i I really appreciate all the fantastic information that you share shared here um and maybe just as sort of a closing thought um you know you could share with us um where folks can go to learn more about burrowing owls and about the Burrowing Owl Conservation Society of British Columbia. Um, and, you know, if there's any sort of uh, uh, action items, you know, and, and anything that you can think of that folks could do to sort sure. of help conserve uh, burrowing owls um, or help protect grassland ecosystems that, that these owls and so many other bird species rely upon. Okay, sure. I'll, um, I'll try. Um, I mean, first, I'd like to really thank you for and and the wildlands um group for kind of helping me you know kind of get this message out um you guys have been really fantastic to work with and very patient with me which is great um as you know when you're working uh, a lot it's hard to kind of fit things in so thanks very much um and if people want to check out more about the burrowing out they definitely can go to your website the wildlands website and check out our video um, you can also go to our own uh, website page, which is www.burrowingowlbc.org. Um, also, for some more up-to-date information, we do have a Facebook group um, called the Burrowing Owl Conservation Society of BC, um, and we can add you as a member to that. Uh, we do have a membership program with our Burrowing Owl Conservation Society, so you can sign up to be a member. It's $25 a year. And just it's it's basically just to kind of show your support for burrowing owls. Um, you get a nice letter and some some other little goodies. So um, that's always great. Um, in terms of um, grasslands conservation, um, I think just being aware of it. Um, you know, even donating to um, conservancy agencies. So I know uh, in the states as well, you guys have Nature Conservancy. They do a lot of great work for not only you know. They're not necessarily focused on species. I mean, they are, but more of the habitat. And that's great. And we work a lot with a lot of groups up here. We've got the Nature Conservancy and the Nature Trust and the Land Conservancy. And so these are great partnerships to work with. And yeah, if you see a burrowing owl and you see a green over black band on it, please send us a, go on our website, send us an email, go on our Facebook page, get a picture of it if you can. Let us know where it is um, because we really kind of want to know what's going on with these guys. So, yeah. Great. Fantastic. Well, some great information there and hopefully uh, uh, we'll get some folks out there who uh, spot some burrowing owls yeah. and, uh, and, and now know what that uh, important band combination is so they can report it back to you guys. <laughs> that would be great. Yeah. <laughs> we can't 
expensive trackers. That's that's better thing, I think. So, yeah. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I mean, we talk a lot about citizen science um, uh, here at Wild Lens. So, um, yeah, that's a great way for folks to participate just by getting out in the field and watching some burring owls. So, yeah, exactly. They're fun to watch. So. Yeah. Great. Well, thanks a lot, Lauren. And uh, yeah, I think we're definitely going to have to have you back on the podcast for, for an update at some point. Sure. Um, yeah. yeah, to see how, see how the season is progressing and uh, get an update on... Um, on, on the issue you guys are having with the, the migratory burrowing mm-hmm. owls that, that don't want to return. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And I can give you an update on like our final numbers and stuff this year of what we released and what were produced and how many returns and stuff we had. So yeah, yeah. that would be perfect. That'd be fantastic. Great. Well, uh, thanks again, Lauren. And, uh, until next time. Okay. Sounds good. Thanks a lot, Matt. All right. Bye. All right. That was our conversation with Lauren Meads. It's great to see such a dedicated group of folks working to conserve this species. Uh, as Lauren pointed out, this is a, a complex, multifaceted conservation issue that's going to take some time to, to work through and to come to a, a, a resolution. Um, as is the case with many wildlife conservation issues uh, these days, um, there's not necessarily an easy short-term solution uh, to a lot of these issues. And the progress that Lauren and others are seeing with this reintroduction project uh, process is is incremental and uh, requires a team of biologists and volunteers who are committed to the continued management and monitoring of this population of burring owls. So they're they're doing important work, and it's good to see that they're having some success in that program. And in addition to Lauren's role as the site coordinator for this uh, release area and captive breeding facility, uh, Lauren has also, as I mentioned early on in that interview, taken on the role of video producer. Lauren is one of the many volunteer videographers and producers who we have trained in the art of documentary storytelling. Um, So be sure to watch the video that we mentioned in that interview called Digging for Owls. Um, it's, it's, uh, it, it'll be released as a video accompaniment to this podcast, so you can download it right there from iTunes, um, or you can go to our website, wildlensinc.org, and you can find the video there. Um, at the moment, it's up on our homepage, but it also has its own, uh, its own uh, page on the site um, in our Eyes on Conservation section. Um, so you can find it there as well. Um, and you can also see it on the homepage of the Burrowing Owl Conservation of British Columbia's website, uh, which is Burrowing Owl, uh, org, I believe. I hope I got that right. And, of course, we'll have links to all of this stuff uh, in the show notes. We'll have uh, uh, that link to the Burrowing Owl Conservation Society of British Columbia website, as well as uh, a few of the blog articles that Lauren has uh, written up for us. Um, And, uh, yeah, you can find all that stuff at our show notes, which will be at wildlensinc.org slash blog slash EOC3. That's wildlensinc.org slash blog slash EOC3. Until next time, this is your host, Matt Podolsky, signing off. Mm-hmm.